Welcome to the Ralston College podcast. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Though we had to postpone last month's Cultural Intellectual Festival, the Savannah Symposium, on account of COVID-19, we thought we'd take the opportunity to connect with some of our speakers from a distance. Today's guest is one of those, the philosopher and theologian Douglas Headley, professor of the philosophy of religion in the Faculty of Divinity at the University of Cambridge, where, as it happens, I had the honor of being a visiting fellow earlier this academic year. I was keen to have a conversation with Dr. Headley because he's able to give an entirely coherent, in other words, rational, account of metaphysical realities, of truth, beauty, and goodness, for example, that so much of contemporary culture and academic intellectual life in particular is unable to acknowledge, let alone understand, as constitutive of the meaningful life. Professor Headley's interests span the whole history of these fundamental questions from the ancient world through to the present day. Today, we speak about the Platonic tradition, materialist determinism, the human faculty of the imagination, the humanities as forms of cognition, and the university in its true form, at least, as a place of illumination. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Thanks for listening. I've got the great pleasure today to be here with Dr. Douglas Headley, Professor of the Philosophy of Religion in the Faculty of Divinity at the University of Cambridge. Dr. Headley is also the director of the Cambridge Center for the Study of Platonism. Douglas, thanks so much for your time today. Well, thank you for inviting me. Douglas, I mentioned you're the director of the Cambridge Center for the Study of Platonism. That the word Platonism, I think, may strike many people as uh, very distant and perhaps uh, uh, ethereally and even unusefully uh, abstract. What are some of the principal themes, ideas, principles, or conceptions that characterize the Platonic tradition broadly understood? Well, that, of course, is a, a quite a demanding question to, uh, to kick off with. Uh, but let me propose to you three aspects of the Platonic tradition, uh, which are particularly significant. And I will quote a few pieces of poetry as an indication of the significance of these ideas via our own artistic tradition. And I may add that the Platonic tradition has been felt particularly powerfully in the arts, in poetry, and in many of the arts. So I'll start off with a few lines from John Keats. And this is his his ode to a Grecian, on a Grecian urn. On attic shape, fair attitude, with braider of marble men and maidens overwrought, with forest branches and the trodden weed, thou, silent form, dost tease us out of thought as doth eternity, cold pastoral, when old age shall this generation waste, thou shalt remain in midst of other woe than ours, a friend to man to whom thou sayest, beauty is truth, truth, beauty, that is all ye know on earth, and all 
you need to know. Now, that claim there, beauty is truth, truth, beauty, that is all you know on earth and all you need to know is, I think, unintelligible without the platonic background to it. And here the idea is or can be found in Plato's Phaedrus and the Symposium. And it is the idea that beauty calls us. Uh, the ancient writers like to play on the etymology of the Greek word kalon and link it to kalein, to call. So what is beauty? Well, it's that that, that calls us. So here's a distinctive notion particular to Platonism that beauty calls us to the transcendent, that beauty is significant because it awakes us to the sense of the transcendent in the here and now. So that's one aspect of the Platonic tradition that I think is very significant in uh, is the, the contemporary aesthetics. I mean, that, of course, has been radically criticized by be rejected by most theorists of art, uh, by most aestheticians today. But nevertheless, it's a very important part of that Platonic legacy. The second aspect of Platonism, I think, that is very significant for our culture is the Platonic conception of nature. And again, here it's worth considering the, the artistic transmission of Platonism. The great environmentalist in uh, America, the founder of the great parks, was an admirer of the lake poets. So John Muir uh, was motivated to save the beautiful redwood trees because he was a great admirer of Wordsworth. So anybody who tells you that ideas don't influence the world is, and the physical world and our habitat is clearly quite wrong. And this was the, the poetry he was reading. There was a time when meadow, grove and stream, the earth and every common sight to me did seem apparelled in celestial light, the glory and the freshness of a dream. Now, that sense of the natural world, again, as a pointer to transcendence, that it is apparelled in celestial light. I mean, you, Stephen, would be particularly familiar with this light imagery that's classically platonic and this glory that the beauty of nature exudes is a conception of nature that was a critique of the Cartesian Newtonian vision of nature as basically inert atoms governed by mechanical laws and was uh, opposing this 17th century model with the view of nature as 
symbolizing a transcendent mind. So that I would say would be a second aspect of the, uh, the Platonic tradition, this conception of, of nature as having an inherently symbolic uh, nature. I'll come to that notion of symbol a bit later. Now, let me continue with this, this poem from Wordsworth. It's called Intimations of Immortality uh, from Recollections of Early Childhood. And there's another very significant passage from the poem where Wordsworth writes, Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life star, hath had elsewhere its setting and cometh from afar not in entire forgetfulness, not in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory do we come from God, who is our home. So there, again, of course, this sense of our birth, our physical birth, is a sleep and a forgetting, that the soul cometh from afar, whether this is a uh, presentation of the doctrine of the pre-existence of the soul, which is a particular Platonic doctrine, one that the Christian orthodoxy was not particularly happy with, generally speaking, there are a few exceptions to that, or not, or whether it's just an image of the, the infinite significance of the soul, um, we can leave that aside. But I think this is another aspect of the Platonic tradition that goes back to the dialogue that was the first dialogue studied in the Platonic school to the great Alcibiades, uh, which of course is concerned with the know thyself. And so I would say that the third element of the Platonic legacy, which is of crucial significance for contemporary culture, is this idea of knowing, knowing yourself, know thyself as a vehicle of the divine. So you know, what is your vocation? Well, your vocation is to be more than yourself. And in Owen Barfield, who once said that words are only themselves by being more than themselves, perhaps the same thing is true of human beings. Well, that's a deeply platonic sentiment. So those are what I would say would be the you know, three characteristic and important um, aspects of the platonic legacy for the contemporary world. Thank you, Douglas. May I follow up with a question about what transcendent means? Often when that word is heard, the, the idea that comes to mind, which I think is very much not what the word means is that somehow it's a it's a it's a collapsing of what's really real in front of us into some form of abstraction that has no real reality and so it's a it's a turning from what's most real in front of us into some kind of empty imagination can you give us a bit more of a sense of what what transcendence <coughs> or the transcendent means in the platonic tradition and whether indeed it's an, it's an abstract and empty thing or whether it is related to the fullness of the things before us? Well, I, th I think the first um, point of departure is the, the core 
metaphysics of Platonism, which I would describe as a top-down approach, as opposed to a bottom-up approach to metaphysics. So the Platonist wants to explain the lower in terms of the higher, whereas the materialist or the nominalist uh, wants to do just the opposite. So whereas the reductionist wants to explain uh, mind and value and freedom as epiphenomena or as, as illusions uh, of a basically uh, material, uh, mechanical reality, uh, the Platonist wants to go the other way around um, and wants to understand the phenomena and wants to understand, I mean, the Platonic tradition is a rationalist tradition, so the emphasis is on logos, on reason, but wants to understand the, uh, the phenomena in terms of those higher realities. So I'd like to think of it like in the following terms. Think about three different options of considering the world. Um, one one could describe as a crass realism. So this is the world that horrified Darwin. It's the world of basically life devouring life. It's just the uh, realm of unremitting brutality. Now, um, there is a great deal of folklore and myth which is devoted to affirming this uh, nature read in, in tooth and claw. Um, and you could say that that's Nietzsche. Really, I mean, Nietzsche is uh, taking this, this view, right? In fact, Nietzsche classically saw Western metaphysics as based on the mistake of Plato and Kant as a pale Königsbergian version of this platonic mistake of another world. We have to affirm the world as it is in all its grim reality. That's the sort of, let's call that the Nietzschean view. Now, there's another view which is closely cognate to that Nietzschean view, and that's, well, look, the world is, is a grim place, as Nietzsche says, but that's a good reason to reject it. Yeah? So let's just turn away. Let's be resigned, and let's find peace and tranquility by removing ourselves from the realm of samsara and developing some sort of alternative milieu through meditation or retreat. So, of course, it's a bit of a giveaway that uh, I'm thinking of Buddhism. I think there are forms of veganism, uh, the, the other aspects of this opposite of the, the Nietzschean view. Now, it seems to me that the Platonic legacy is, is a third position in which um, the, 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 the brutality of aspects of the world is recognized, but that beauty and goodness is perceived to be at the very heart of what truly is. And I would describe this as the participatory model. Yeah? So the world 
is both an image of uh, its source, which is ultimately, which is good um, and which is beautiful, but that it is a shadow of that ultimate reality. So it seems to me that the transcendence that Platonism has bequeathed to the West, uh, and I think in many ways this has uh, cohabited with the Abrahamic traditions, um, and particularly with Christianity in the West, has been to uh, present a view of the world as grounded in absolute goodness, but of course a world which is full of pain and suffering, and one that we should recognize as, as such. So I think that this, this Platonic tradition offers a critique of both um, the Nietzschean conception of, or the, you might say, or the Schopenhauerian view of the world as inherently uh, grim, but it also offers a critique of the false utopianism, the things that we can you know, step out of this world as we encounter it altogether. So I would say that this is, this is a model of the, um, the reality of absolute goodness, but it's the reality of absolute goodness as bodied forth in an image-like manner. And for this sense, I think the symbol is so important here. I mean, Coleridge thought that, you know, it's one of the miseries of our age, well, of his age, but I think it's as true for our age as well, that there is um, no um, alternative but merely the radical opposition of the literal and the metaphoric. Uh, whereas uh, Coleridge thought that the symbol is, is missing here. And the symbol, of course, is always a part of what it represents. And so the symbol, the sense of the, of the natural realm as symbolic of the divine is part of this characteristically platonic vision of the temporal and visible world uh, participating in the eternal uh, and uh, being an image of that archetypal reality. So that's how I would want to think of uh, transcendence in this platonic tradition. It seems to me that on the one hand, you're looking to avoid a deterministic materialism, and on the other hand, to avoid a kind of ungrounded speculation that isn't accountable to the here and now. To give a more adequate, more rational account of material reality, you might say of the here and now, precisely by understanding animating principles. Yeah, I think this question of freedom is absolutely central here. And the it's a notion of freedom which is tied to the issue of value, tied to the issue of commitment and reason. So I think uh, the sort of philosophizing that I'm thinking of here is uh, an emphasis upon freedom, which is not conceived of as caprice, 
aura's whimsy, mere arbitrariness, but rather a freedom that is guided by values, freedom that is guided by the fact that we are rational creatures. I mean, I think this is one reason why the humanities must be the most important element in any university. I mean, that's not to denigrate the significance of the sciences. That's not to deny that the scientific revolution of the 17th century belongs, I would say, like the um, agrarian and livestock uh, development that occurred, what, 10,000 BC, um, to one of the great momentous shifts in, in human civilization. But nevertheless, uh, we are self-conscious creatures, con conscious of our mortality, conscious of the uh, limits of our resources. Um, one only has to think of those dreadful words in Shakespeare's King Richard II, I have wasted time and now time wastes me. Um, to think about the burden that we all bear to use this fuel of time in a positive way um, and to make productive use of our freedom. And, and there it seems to me again that this inherited tradition has immense value in our culture, not least because the 20th century was, of course, shaped by, I would say, the, the, the forces of, of communism and, and fascism on the one hand, which had no conception of the soul whatsoever. And a, a liberal uh, democratic tradition, of which I'm a great admirer, but which I think one could say that one of the weaknesses of this liberal democratic tradition in Western culture has been the denigration or erosion of the ancient conception of the soul in favor of the self and the self conceived of primarily economically. So life then becomes primarily a question about choice or about the realization of various choices in, in a lifespan, rather than the traditional vocation of the soul. So I, I think that this question of the, um, the nature of the soul, the significance of the soul, is really at the heart of the, of the humanities. Can I ask not just a customer, but as, as, a, as a moral agent uh, and as a spiritual being. Yes, yeah, say more about that, Douglas. You began by saying that one of the three pillars of, as it were, the Platonic tradition, you mentioned beauty, nature, and uh, self-knowledge. Yeah. Give us a sense of what you're, give us a bit more of a sense of what you are looking to distinguish uh, between the contemporary vision or language of self from a Platonic conception of soul. How are those similar and how are those different? What, what precisely... Uh, are the limitations of the self as it is so often conceived? Well, <clears throat> I think that 
one has to be careful here because um, much of contemporary culture in the West has been so deeply shaped by a Platonic Christian inheritance. So I would say that the infinite uh, significance of the individual human being, qua soul, has been profoundly influential in you know, contemporary rights discourse um, and in, you know, in, in, in many, many positive ways in uh, contemporary Western culture. But it has produced a number of paradoxes, not least because it's often been divorced from the metaphysical underpinnings uh, out of which it emerged. So we all talk very happily about rights, um, but it's without um, a conception of, for example, the, the human being being made in the image of God or having infinite significance because um, having this uh, be, being linked to the divine in a profound way, that then um, leads to all kinds of puzzles, such as you know, should animals have rights, um, or uh, you know, what are the extent of these these rights? I think that's an example of one of the puzzles that's emerged from the curious transmission of certain ancient ideas into contemporary culture. Douglas, may I just stop you for a minute to ask, to interject and ask about these metaphysical foundations. Uh, very often when people use the language of, for example, made in the image of God, to people who are secular or not religious believers, it sounds as though, you know, one is simply moved into a realm of, of irrational speculation. Uh, can you give us in, uh, in terms that, that can be followed by someone who, let's say, considers themselves to be a deeply rational person. Give us a bit more of a sense of what you mean by the metaphysical foundations or the self's connection with the divine uh, that don't involve, you know, what others would consider a, a great leap of faith. What, what are those metaphysical foundations? What are we talking about when you, when you use those words? Well, um, I think here we're, we're well, for, for, for one thing, we're talking about the extraordinary capacity of the human mind to imagine certain forms of order and to discover that they exist. Um, and I'm not just thinking of the 17th century or contemporary physics. Of course, that's very puzzling why it is that mathematics should be um, a useful tool in understanding the, the universe. But I think, you know, right back to our, our ancestors who, in, in, in hunter-gatherer ages, who, who were clearly fascinated by certain patterns that they observed, like patterns of the days, uh, day and night, of uh, months and, and uh, 
that their, their interest in um, the, the movement of the stars. So clearly there is um, this side of the hu human being, which for Plato and Aristotle is distinctively human. And that is as you know, rational beings who are able to comprehend the environment that uh, surrounds us in ways that radically transcend the, the necessities of survival. So it's, it's I, I would say that, um, I mean, I, I, if I were to uh, uh, want to criticize Plato and Aristotle uh, you know, um, uh, in, a mo in a moment of hubris, um, I would only say that they, they should link up reason with imagination. I mean, it's, it's that, that you know, human beings are not just distinctively rational, but it's, it's an imaginative rationality. I, this is what's distinctive here, is not so much adaptive intelligence, because we see that throughout the rest of the animal kingdom, but this extraordinary symbolic intelligence that we are able to penetrate the veil. We are able to unveil certain mysteries. Now, of course, the religious traditions in, in, in various cultures are very wary of this. And we find this in Job and in various other biblical texts. Beware this uh, hubristic spirit of trying to um, unveil the secrets of nature. But it is, I think, an, an extraordinary capacity of, of human beings, of human culture, which does not make much sense on a reductionistic, deterministic model. I mean, the irony of the, the Hobbesian model that, you know, we are just material objects in a material world determined by just the same laws is that it makes the very existence of science uh, and morality, of course, completely unintelligible. Without the capacity to understand, to imagine, as you put it, order and various kinds of order, which are themselves metaphysical realities. Mathematics, for example, is not an essentially material reality, though it manifests in the material. Uh, uh, the whole scientific enterprise is, is, is impossible. So it depends, the scientific enterprise depends fundamentally on metaphysical realities, truth, order, the laws of logic and so forth, that it cannot itself give an account of. So, <clears throat> so I take it what you're saying here is that something like the platonic understanding of reality is the very condition of science and of the discoveries of the 17th century and beyond. Have I understood you right there, Douglas? Yes, I mean, I, <laughs> yes, I would, I would say that's, 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 that's right. Um, I mean, I could, I could give some, some historical arguments for that in terms of um, uh, Kepler or uh, Descartes, I mean, there were platonic elements in both Kepler and Descartes, and uh, it may well have been that my own dear Cambridge Platonists influenced um, 
Newton. Um, but I, 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 I'm not at the moment wanting to defend a, a kind of historical argument of that kind, but, but just making a, a broader philosophical point. And one, actually, the fun enough Thomas Nagel makes that, that um, you know, Nagel often observes that um, the critics of religion present religion as, as basically irrational, usually, and, and as opposed to science. And yet, there is a profoundly religious aspect to the whole scientific endeavor. Now, of course, uh, you find that in uh, figures, well, obviously, Newton would be a good example, and, and Einstein in the, the modern period would be another, uh, God does not roll dice. But uh, now, of course, there, there, there are questions here about what they, you know, what was the God they're talking about. Um, but I think the, the point that Nagel is making is, is a good one, that the capacity for science, just like the capacity of ethics, is deeply mysterious. And I think this comes back to um, one of the core issues in philosophy that Plato certainly emphasizes, and that is the experience of wonder. Again, why are the humanities significant for us? Well, they're significant, I think, particularly because we're self-conscious creatures. So we represent a point in which self-consciousness emerges at this very late phase of the development of the universe and our own uh, uh, planet. And the awareness of the sheer mystery of existence is something which you know, must be at the heart of the humanities. Whatever view you take philosophically, I mean, whether that leads you to sympathize with Jean-Paul Sartre or Bertrand Russell or Plotinus, but that uh, sense of the sheer mystery of being not just alive, but aware that we're alive. I think that must be right at the heart of the, the humanities. And I, I find so much of the atmosphere in the humanities in the contemporary university rather deadening, I'm afraid. Um, and the awakening of that spirit of wonder is, I think, very much needed at the moment. Let's let's speak a bit further about wonder and the imagination. Uh, a point that has often been made by historians of science, of course, is that science itself, in the moment of great discovery, you can look at at at, at the great discoveries for of physicists, for example. The moment of discovery is often described as a kind of flash of insight or an expansive reach of the imagination, uh, not a kind of you know cold uh, chart following, uh, let's say, stereotype of the of the so-called scientific method. So even in what we think of as the most rationally defined uh, disciplines, they are deeply embedded and dependent upon the capacities 
that we have to uh, to imagine and to wonder about how things are. Um, so let's let's speak a bit further about the imagination, Douglas. I know you've written a, a series of books, really, that deal with the imagination. Why is it important that we cultivate our imaginations, and how do we do so? What are the means of cultivation of the imagination that you can point us towards? Well, let me answer that, or begin to answer it, by, by quoting the great bard. So, um, so these, these wonderful lines from Shakespeare, tell me where is fancy bread? or in the heart, or in the head, how begot, how nourished, reply, reply, it is engendered in the eyes, with gazing fed, and fancy dies in the cradle where it lies. Let us all ring fancy's knell, I'll begin it. Ding dong bell, ding dong bell. Um, now, uh, again, that's a classic bit of uh, Shakespeare where you have this, you know, wonderfully profound question or thought, but in, put in a comic uh, or distorting context. This was the question that, that the, the great romantics were concerned with and, and Coleridge in particular, and his de-synonymizing of the terms fancy and imagination, his distinction between the words fancy and imagination was a deliberate attempt to distinguish between a capacity for fanciful association a sort of quasi-mechanical operation of the mind that we're all familiar with. One image uh, inspiring a like image. And what he regarded as a characteristically human capacity, a creative capacity, well, first of all, to structure our experience in a unified way, so that we are not, as he would say, merely uh, lazy onlookers or subject to what he calls the despotism of the eye, right? So that the, the world that we experience is not merely a reading off of passive impressions, but we have to structure the world that we encounter. So it's a thought that we are essentially hermeneutical. We're essentially interpretative creatures, and that is unavoidable. And given this interpretive activity that is part of our engagement with the world, we are, even perceptually speaking, imaginative. But moreover, that we are imaginative in a creative sense, um, there's a, there's a book which is a sort of airport book called, I don't know if you've come across this book, but called Sapiens by an Israeli writer. Um, I think he's, I don't want to mispronounce his name on here, but it's, it's Harari, I think. And he has a 
thesis about the significance of the imagination for the development of sapiens. I mean, he's based Homo sapiens. I mean, he's, he's, it's called sapiens, but it's about Homo sapiens and why basically um, were hairless apes like ourselves who at a certain point in our evolutionary history in East Africa uh, waiting to pick up the scraps from the more powerful uh, animals around us, suddenly able to uh, take over the globe and come to dominate it in the way that, that human beings have. And his answer is to say, well, basically it's the imagination. I mean, that, that through the imagination, we were able to employ various uh, fantastical ideas like nations or gods, and more recently, rights, uh, which of course are pure fantasies, they, they are products of the imagination, but have enabled us to dominate and control the, the world in, in an unparalleled manner, and particularly striking given our uh, physical feebleness compared with most of our competitors. That is, that is a, a model of imagination as pure fantasy, right? I mean, that, that um, whereas, I, so I think he's, he's, it's, it's an interesting account of the development of Homo sapiens, but I think there's a significant point in which he gets it wrong. I, the point is that it's, it's imagination in this romantic sense that enables human beings to develop science. It's, I think, imagination in this profoundly cognitive sense that enables us to build societies in which some element of justice is realizable, where politics is based on more than just the clamor of the crowd, but on beauty, goodness, and truth, however imperfectly. Now, that's because we're able to imagine beauty, we're able to imagine truth, we're able to imagine goodness, but in a cognitive way. So not as Harari thinks, fantastically, and oh, by the way, these bizarre byproducts of the evolutionary history happen to help us survive, but rather we have this mysterious capacity. And I think this mysterious capacity is profoundly linked to the sense of the sacred. I mean, that's why I think that religion plays a very profound role here. So I think that um, you know, it's, it's no accident that some of the earliest artifacts of human culture are artistic, you know, but also religious. I mean, think of the cave paintings or think of a temple, like the temple of um, Gebekli Tepe in, in Turkey, built by hunter-gatherers. That's quite extraordinary that such an edifice would be built by a society which was not even an agricultural society. And that suggests to me that this sense of the holy, this sense of the sacred, I think that's a primordial sense of the transcendent in the midst of our lives is a distinctively human capacity. It's, it's, it's right at the core of human civilization. And I think any account of human civilization that tries to understand it 
in terms of class, race, gender, all the, the traditional contemporary themes, but fails to take account of that primordial sense of the transcendent, that basic sense of the sacred is, is inadequate. I think you're illuminating for us, Douglas, the fact that there is a connection between our inner life on the one hand and what is real outside of us on the other, that there's an inherent connection between our thinking, the structures of thought, and the external world. You know, what we see with mathematical thinking, for example, if you think of a, of a mathematician or an engineer working out an equation you know, on a chalkboard, for example, is, I mean, that has a hold, that kind of thinking has a hold on how nature works. The reason the bridge holds up is because those mathematical equations, if they are accurate, manifest the nature of nature itself. I mean, it isn't obvious that that should be the case, that our thinking, that you know, what goes on in our heads should be connected to what is real outside of us. The truths that we are capable of internally grasping in thought are connected with the truth of the world. That is what thinking is, coming to know in us the truth of things in themselves. And so you were mentioning the author of Sapiens and you know, the concepts of, of uh, the concept of nation and of, of rights and so forth. I mean, those concepts, they wouldn't actually work in reality if they were just fancies. You know, like thinking you can fly or you can turn iron into gold or you know, a fanciful imagination that is not rooted in reality. Those concepts of the nation or, or natural of rights or whatever, they work because they manifest what is actually in us potentially, in our nature. Those concepts have purchase on reality itself. And I think one can see the same dynamic in perhaps an even richer way by thinking about, for example, forgiveness. Say we have wronged someone or been wronged by someone. We can have an idea of how an act of forgiveness can bring something about in the real world, a reunification of what is divided or alienated, a harmonization of what is discordant in a relationship. And we've all experienced that reconciliation, either forgiving someone else or being forgiven ourselves. And that reconciliation would not be, be possible at all if it were not conforming to the deeper structures of reality. It is in the nature of reality that reconciliation has purchase and power. If reconciliation were a mere fancy, it would have no purchase on the real. It would not have the power to bring about real good. Being denied forgiveness or denying others forgiveness leads predictably to painful and lonely places. So there's a deep connection between our inner life on the one hand and the nature of reality itself in the fullest sense on the other. Our inner life has in it the very principles and nature of what is real. Would you agree, Douglas? Yes, I think that's right. If I could just say in parenthesis, um, we were talking your image of, of forgiveness. I was, um, uh, I've been recently reading some of the late plays of Shakespeare, um, which are of course all about forgiveness um, and uh, atonement, at one moment, 
uh, um, extraordinarily profound um, uh, plays like The Tempest or uh, Measure for Measure or, or Winter's Tale, um, plays that, that veer between the comic and the tragic and a very difficult place. But that notion of forgiveness is absolutely central in reconciliation. And, and Shakespeare was a... I mean, in many ways, he was the inspirational force for romanticism. I mean, almost all the romantics um, in Germany and, and in um, uh, and other parts of Europe and, and, of course, England as well, saw Shakespeare as this uh, paradigmatic figure. And I think it does come to this issue that you talk about the relationship between the inner life um, and reality. And of course, in a sense, it's it's tied up with this this crucial period in in Western history with the the, the scientific revolution from Galileo um, through to Descartes and to, and to Newton, and the I think the sense of the precisely the alienation between the inner life and reality that that scientific revolution. Um, which I think is, is I mean, that, that alienation is, I think, part of the human condition, but it was certainly exacerbated or reinforced by the scientific revolution in a particular way, most notably by Descartes' contrast between the res cogitans and the res extensa, this radical disjunction between mind as a thinking thing and the world as extension. Now, much of the philosophy and thought of the uh, from the 17th century onwards is grounded in this profound sense of alienation. That we are alienated. You know that that our inner lives are disconnected from reality, and there needs to be some form of reconciliation some form of at-one-ment, some form of, of atonement. And I think you can see the, uh, a model of participation and attempted reconciliation in a figure like Schiller. So when Schiller produces his remarkable account of aesthetics in his letters on the aesthetic education of humanity and says man only plays when he's fully human and is only fully human when humanity plays. That is a model of the attempted reconciliation of this painful alienation that has been so much a characteristic of Western society since the 17th century. And I think that's precisely this this, um, notion of a disconnection between the inner life or or, um, a division between the the inner life um, and, and, and the external world. Let's say a bit more about that, Douglas, because the division you're speaking of, of course, we, we all know that division. We all know what 
alienation feels like, whether it's personally or economically or, or uh, whether it's in terms of love or nation or friendship, uh, alienation is clearly a part of everyone's, everyone's life. And, and I think it's, it's important to say that, that it is the, funda- the fundamentally underlying premise of, say, the whole work of Karl Marx is, is a perception of alienation. I'd like to ask you how one moves from a standpoint of alienation towards a standpoint of reconciliation. It's, it certainly seems to me that, it, that, that the very principles or the very uh, standpoint from which Marx begins makes any reconciliation impossible. Uh, the, the alienation, at least as I read him, and I'm, I'm only beginning to return to reread Marx uh, after many years, so that, that I, 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 may, I may be wrong about this, but it seems to me that the standpoint has built in the problem in such a way that it can never be overcome. Uh, alienation is the fundamental uh, state of things, and so there can only ever be newer or other forms of alienation. To overcome alienation itself depends on imagining a standpoint that can overcome that alienation. And that means perceiving truths that are operative in and beyond our our alienation. So you might say it's a spiritual move whereby we can recover a unity that is beyond us, but from which we we are currently outside of. Can you say something, Douglas, about the standpoint from which you think uh, alienation can be overcome even in the midst of the alienation we experience. What does it? What is the? Into, what is the? What are the premises of an intellectual standpoint from which that reharmonization is possible? Well, if I could come back to the to the to the marks, actually, sure. Um, where, I mean, I think here there's a, there's an interesting aspect of Marx where he. He really is a product of romanticism, and it's a certain kind of romanticism, and of course a certain kind of of um, Hegelianism. Um, I, I, I mean, even his obvious uh, contempt for the bourgeoisie, um, it, it almost has a um, an aristocratic tinge to it. And of course, he was he was married to a von Westphalen, and uh, so to an aristocrat, and his 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 friend Engels liked to ride, I think, with the Cheshire Hunt. So they, there's a <laughs> the, 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 there is an element of aristocratic disdain for bourgeois activity and the critique of capitalism in the origins of Marxism, which is um, uh, historically intriguing. But sorry, that's a that's a bit of a diversion. But I, I what I basically want to say is that this romantic side of it, right? So this. The, the dirty, nasty side of capitalism, the the exploitation of it, the the, the um, uh, I mean, I think in 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 many, the most effective lies have an element of truth in them, and and I think that's that's the point with with communism, it it has certain spiritual truths within a model that overall one has to say, has created uh, untold pain and suffering for humanity. Um, but but it's, I think it, it's, it certainly is a model of 
human beings being alienated, or at least under the conditions of capital, being alienated from their true selves. And it has a model of how that the overcoming of that alienation should occur. And they're, of course, the master slave of Hegel's phenomenology, through which the slave uh, overcomes the master. And then, of course, that is the the, the victory of the proletariat over the um, the bourgeoisie and taking over the, the means of production. So I think it's it's uh, but the Marxist model is 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 very much I think a, 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 as much a product of Romanticism as as uh, Coleridge or, or Keats. And I wouldn't want to endorse the solution that that the the the, the Marxists offer to the, the, the problem of alienation. Um, and I think the, the key issue there is the, the materialism. I mean, Marx was a great reader of Hegel, but he thought that the concept of Geist was bunk. So it's the determinism and materialism uh, of Marx, which I think is, is philosophically untenable. And that we don't have to discuss, obviously, what happened politically with the, because of the the utopianism that the process of reconciliation under Marx uh, engendered. But I think that that sense of reconciliation from a Platonic perspective, and obviously that's what we're concentrating on today, has to stress the well the spiritual nature of of human beings i mean that that's the aspect i think that, that marx is leaving out and most significantly for us in the modern university marx's successors i'm thinking particularly of the most cited philosopher in recent years uh michel foucault um and of course for foucault the spiritual dimension of humanity is is not a consideration, or at least not overtly. Of course, uh, Foucault was deeply impressed by Pierre Adou, uh, and I think that there there are elements in in Foucault that uh, may be more suggestive of a richer, more nuanced view of life than the work of his epigones. But of course, the legacy of Foucault, I think, has been absolutely disastrous for the humanities. And the that legacy being that the, the answer to alienation is um, this absurd victim culture in which we simply diagnose uh, the oppressor um, and unveil the uh, oppressor, whether that oppressor happens to be a particular class or a particular gender or, um, or, or some other group. Um, now, it seems to me that, that the, the richness of the tradition of the humanities that we both feel very much committed to is... Um, that it's an altogether more nuanced vision of the human being and one in which 
it's our humanity, not our our gender or our uh, the particularities of our upbringing or, or um, any other contingent aspect of our humanity, but the soul. It's and the yearning of the soul for beauty, goodness, and truth, and the painful aspect of making sacred. I mean, in my book on sacrifice, I, I like to stress the etymology of the word sacrifice, that the, this is grounded in the, the making sacred, the sacra facere. Any attempt to overcome the division between the inner life and reality and I think that is a task for all serious and reflective adults is through the painful and scrupulous engagement with reality conceived of as beauty, truth and goodness. And of course that's painful because we, we fail to come, <laughs> come up to match up to, to, these, um, to these paradigms. What is in a way ironic about a figure who had the intellectual capacities and talent of someone like Marx is that even to articulate the conceptual standpoint of material determinism is in a sense a betrayal of the freedom of thought that is necessary to articulate that very position. The Marxist Foucauldian standpoint, at least insofar as it has come to be widely dominant in the academy and especially in the humanities, is a betrayal of the most basic human reality, our freedom to imagine and understand ourselves in relation to what is real. They replace that innate freedom with a determinism from which there is never any escape. It's worse than that. I mean, it's, 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 a fail, it's an imaginative failure. I mean, think about you know, one of the, I'll just take an example, the cathedrals of 12th century Europe, I mean, they are absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, the, the sheer beauty of those buildings, those testaments to transcendence, you know, built by you know, our ancestors living lives of, you know, for us, almost unimaginable poverty and and hardship i mean they would they would laugh at 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 the anxieties that we have about coronavirus i mean given the the, the, the continuing threat of plague and disease uh, and yet in this context of a life uh, shaped by by need and and poverty they build these fantastic Buildings, and I use the word fantastic, uh, absolutely literally, uh, and I think that says something about you know, human nature that these reductionistic accounts simply do not save the appearances. And I'd say one other thing that there's a, a legendary statement of Meister Eckhart. I've never been able to trace this, but but the the, the great German mystic is said to have claimed that if you have just one prayer, and that is gratitude, it's enough. 
Now that sense of gratitude to life in response to this primordial mystery, I think is, is one of the most significant aspects of our inheritance. And it is one that these descendants of Foucault neglect altogether. I mean, that sense of joy and superabundance, often in the midst of physical and material and economic hardship, is one of the distinctive aspects of human culture. And I think that's one of the, the aspects of, you know, of Schiller's attempt to provide a model of reconciliation from alienation through playing with beauty. In a way, that's what I think the builders of those magnificent cathedrals of 12th century Europe were doing. They were playing with beauty. And of course, it was a playing that was grounded in awe and gratitude. But it's a behavior that makes absolutely no sense in prudential terms. Let's conclude, Douglas, with a a few words about beauty. There's a sense when one, when one is talking about these things, about Foucault and Marx and Plato, that these questions can seem abstract in a way that uh, per- perhaps uh, is, uh, seems un- unconnected with the, the, the realities that we live in. But I think the fact of the matter is that the reductivist materialist standpoint has left all of us with a pretty thin gruel to, to live on. And uh, even the most back-of-the-envelope sketch of what really matters to all the human beings I know, one could say love and freedom and justice and participation in uh, relationships that are deeply meaningful, none of that is real or can be accounted for uh, from the standpoint of the reductivist materialist uh, determinism. And so the great challenge, I think, of our time is to reimagine ourselves and our culture such that we can live more fully and freely. So I want to ask you in conclusion, Douglas, I mean, you mentioned the great uh, cathedrals of the 12th century, these fantastical monuments which were brought into the world and which even today have the capacity to, to inspire awe and a sense of beauty to those who come to their their portals. Sketch out for us a bit more other things that have the capacity to change how we think about ourselves. So I think a lot about education. I think about memorizing poetry in uh, earlier grades. I think about uh, the architecture that we live in relation to and how that has such a huge effect on how we conceive ourselves. Give us a sense of uh, ways into more fully imagining ourselves. Here, I think uh, I'll turn to Coleridge. Um, and that aspect of Coleridge, which stresses the role of poetry to, as he says, to bring the whole soul of man into activity. So here, I think, is a critique of a narrow rationalism. The reason why I would want to emphasize both reason and imagination is, I mean, not seeing those as opposites, but as, as linking the two, 
is um, for just the reasons that Ian McGilchrist, for example, in his book, The Master and His Emissary, diagnoses our own society as suffering from what he would say is a uh, a right hemisphere deficit. I mean, that that is that that this narrow rationalism, i.e., that it's the again, it's 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 linked to the sort of division that you were mentioning earlier between the the inner self and the external world. It's a failure to appreciate the ways in which the humanities offer real forms of thought that help us to engage with reality. And this, I think, is linked to a peculiarity of the English word science. Now, if you're speaking, if we were talking in German, or I think I'm right in saying this in French as well, if we were to be talking about science, it is clear that we are talking about the humanities. Now, speaking in English, uh, it's not at all clear. In fact, that seems to be precisely what is excluded by talking about science. Now, this generates, I think, this profoundly problematic conception of the arts as merely ornament. It's merely a way of dressing up the world, of entertaining ourselves, perhaps refining our sensibilities, but not a cognitive enterprise. I think if the humanities are to survive, and I think they're in a pretty perilous position at the moment, then we need to recover a sense in which the humanities really are part of a cognitive endeavor. And that, I think, is, is reinforced in the English-speaking world by the peculiarity of the word science, which is far narrower than episteme, far narrower than scientia, um, or Wissenschaft, um, and uh, the 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 sense of the university as having a seminal role in society, as having a uh, the role of a beacon of light, of having transformative potential that must be linked to a sense of the humanities as being forms of cognition. And I think if that, if, if, if that is lost and all the humanities consist in are either forms of ornament or documents by which you can unveil the nefarious political practices of various groups in history, then that redemptive potential of the humanities is, is, I think, lost. That's so beautifully said, Douglas, and it's a wonderful note for us to conclude on. The prospect of the humanities regaining their deeper forms of cognition and of the university being, again, a place of illumination. 
Stephen, thank you very much for this conversation that I've certainly enjoyed greatly. And I look forward to discussing these matters with you again very soon. You've been listening to the Ralston College podcast. Today's guest was Professor Douglas Headley, philosopher and theologian of the University of Cambridge. If you'd like to explore Dr. Headley's rich and illuminating work, I suggest his three books on the imagination, including Living Forms of the Imagination, Sacrifice Imagined, Violence, Atonement, and the Sacred, and finally, The Iconic Imagination, all readily available online. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you may do so with all the usual podcast apps, or if you'd like, you can support our work to renew, reform, and reimagine higher education at www.ralston.ac. Upcoming episodes include interviews with the Nobel laureate in economics, Vernon Smith, North Korean defector, Yunmi Park, and the late mathematician polymath, Freeman Dyson. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Till next time.